0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives with Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts about God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our rhythms. We pray
1: this message is a blessing. We have a few scriptures to read tonight. Cool. So we'll be reading from firstly Psalm 104, verse 1. And it says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then we'll be going on to 10 to 15. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. Is that how you say it? I hope so. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And then we'll be reading Matthew 11, verse 19. And it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Awesome. Grab a seat if you've not already taken a seat. Friends, welcome. Uh, My name's Alex. I've got the joy of serving as the pastor here alongside a team of pastors and incredible people that call New Life Brisbane home. I just feel it on my heart, this isn't in my notes and it's not typical, but um, that's when you know it's good, right? Uh, I just feel it on my heart, I think the presence of God is quite strong in the room, and I just want to give us an invitation to respond to that. Um, And so if that's okay, I think the way we might do this, uh, and this is probably a first for me too, so don't freak out, Um, but if we could just close our eyes, if if you're comfortable with that. And one of the privileges of being a pastor, um, feel free to keep your eyes closed. Um, I'm not gonna turn up next to you on your seat. Uh, but one of the privileges of being a pastor is, is to unfold the scriptures as they were written, inspired by God for us, but also to, to narrate what I think could be happening. And I just think there's an invitation of God's love to each of us right now. Uh, but I think there might be an invitation for those who don't know Jesus, who just as they've stepped in here this afternoon just, they feel like they're interacting with something from another world, uh, something divine, something whose posture toward them is love and kindness. And so if that's you, can I just ask you with every eye closed, every head bowed, just, just to raise your hand where you are. We'd love to pray with you and for you right now. Nice and high so I can see. Wonderful, thank you. I see that hand. That's beautiful. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, I think I might have missed the other one. Can you just both raise your hand again? Wonderful, Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. We're just going to keep our eyes closed and um, And we're just going to sit here for a moment, and let me just share what I think is true about God because of what I've experienced in Jesus Christ. God loves you with an everlasting love. He is for you, not against you. There is no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are offered a fresh start and a clean slate in this moment right now. And so if you'd like to receive that, just pray this prayer. And can I invite those who call New Life Brisbane home just to pray it along with me, if that's okay. We're gonna say to God, sorry, thank you, and please. In fact, let's reverse those two. We're gonna say thank you first, sorry, and then please. So with one voice, church, let's just repeat after me. God, thank you for your love. Thank you that it's here. It's not just an idea, it's real. And I receive it. Sorry that I don't always receive it. Please help me receive it even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I know the person who put their hand up and uh, I'd love to meet with you after the service if that's okay. I'm looking around just to protect you. But um, if you were near that person and saw them put their hand up and you called New Life Brisbane home, uh, maybe you can beat me to it and just encourage that brother who perhaps responded to Jesus' love for the very first time. How good. How good. Uh, We're going to jump into the scriptures, and uh, my joy is that I get to finish off our series we kicked off the new year with, we do it every single year, Rhythms, and Rhythms begins with, actually before I jump into it, gosh, see me go, I just went straight into it, I got one quick announcement, Uh, let me jump over here just to differentiate space, it's helpful psychologically, Um, Elders nominations, how's that for an announcement after this? Are we ready? Are we ready? Do we think eldership's helpful? I'm super excited, genuinely. Two elders finished up in their term uh, two, three weeks ago, uh, and we are on the hunt for two more elders uh, to serve. And just as the pastor of New Life Brisbane, just want to elevate the importance of this in our lives. Uh, Elders do more. I want to say than we can ask, think, or imagine, but that's God. Um, Elders serve in a capacity that is so untold, so unthanked, deeply necessary, and incredibly beautiful. Uh, And so it is a role of service and a role of leadership, and I wouldn't be the pastor I am if it wasn't for the elders that we have, the accountability they give me, the encouragement and support that they give me, and we wouldn't be the church that we're growing to be if it wasn't for our elders, the way they serve, the way they love, the way they lead. And so if you call New Life Brisbane home, uh, there is a way by which you can nominate someone for eldership, uh, and I would encourage you, please do that. It closes 5th of February, so if you're sitting on a name, put it in the process, and we will submit that to a wonderful discernment process because of which we hope in a month's time we'll be able to vote to accept what we uh, share as the nominating committee, uh, our our pick of the, of the lot, so to speak. And so the way you can access that form is uh, there's a QR code in the foyer. Scan that QR code. It'll take you to the link tree. You can nominate through there. That's enough from me. Let me pray, and we're going to jump into the scriptures. Awesome. Father, thank you that your word never returns void, that you spoke long ago, yet you still speak today by your Son through your Spirit. So we pray, speak to us now. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. I want to begin with an assumption. That assumption is is that you've been walking with us through this rhythm series, which sort of begins with this acknowledgement that who we are becoming is more important than what we do. And who we're becoming is dictated not by the big decisions in our life, not by the thoughts that we've got, but the small everyday rhythms, the small calendars, the everyday decisions, the little things we do that over time change us, shape us, inflect us into a certain kind of human being. And one of the ways that a lot of writers, uh, particularly through church history, have made sense of this is through something called spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines is a fancy word we give to all the things you probably already do. Uh, things like prayer, things like fasting, things like celebration, things like silence and solitude, Sabbath-keeping, rest. And one of the ways that sort of literature has made sense of these practices is by giving them titles, titles of engagement or disengagement. And so you might prescribe for someone uh, the the spiritual discipline of worship—that coming to worship with the gathered group of God's people actually does something to our hearts. It's not just something we do; it does something to us. Put it in your calendar. Prioritize the rhythm. Get into worship. Engage God through worship. But you might also suggest something that disengages humans, to step back from earthly goods or perhaps worldly evils in a bid to feast on God. And this week we're doing one of those kinds of disengaged spiritual practices. We're going to disengage from food so that we might feast on God. And today we're going to zoom in, and the reason I go this long way around is just so you've got the topography to take your own journey forward after this, we're going to zoom in on spiritual discipline of engagement called celebration through the rhythm, you ready? The rhythm of feasting. You ready? I want us to think about food this afternoon. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, I think our world has a strange relationship with food. Now, you've got to stick with me for the first five minutes and then the next 25 minutes after that. But I genuinely think our world's got a strange relationship with food. Right now, the WHO, World Health Organization, estimates that 333 million people run the risk of food insecurity in this year. At the same time, Australia wastes more than 7.6 million tonnes of food that's edible every single year, enough to fill the Melbourne cricket ground nine times over. Macro. On a micro level, I don't know if you've experienced this, but recently I've, well not recently, this is an old habit of mine, but you know YouTube shorts? There's two ways people relate as influences to food, I've, I've discovered. You got your TikTok chefs. Anyone fan of TikTok chefs? Yep, basically people, they film 90 second videos, they cut it all together really well, and all of a sudden they say, I'm gonna make a Portuguese tart, and out the end comes this beautiful cinnamon dusted thing. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna try that, and you fail, but. It sort of creates this sense that food is this beautiful thing. We all become gastrophiles, which is a fancy way of saying food lovers. And in our cultural moment, you can be on one end of the spectrum, an absolute lover of food, and elevate it to this place of importance. And I don't know if you've had that moment, but I think post-war generations, typically when you're getting dinner on the table, it's meat and veg. But for millennials and Gen Z, someone sings out to the kitchen, where's the food? And you yell back, honey, I'm plating. Back off. What am I talking about? There's this just love and fantasization of food in our cultural moment down one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, food's not fantasy, it's just fuel. And the other popular uh, sort of social media trend is for fitness fanatics to sort of plaster ways by which you can grow on your health and your fitness. And food in the fitness world isn't fantasy or something you get excited about. It might be, but that's a bit harder on the diet spectrum. It's something you fantasize about. Sorry, it's something that's just fuel, it's just utility. How do we relate to food? What is food to the modern human being? There was a Ukrainian Jewish Aussie writer, she writes for the Australian, she's a journalist, she put it like this, summing up this sort of way we relate to food. I know some of you are thinking, where's he going with this? She said this, uh, Maria Tumarkin, how is it that in our culture, food is simultaneously elevated into something much more than a basic physiological necessity, and yet at the same time denigrated into something utterly extraneous? to the continuation and blossoming of human life. What is food? Just pause for a moment, I know there's some chefs in the room. Me asking that question runs the risk of going, why is this in the pulpit? This sounds gloriously anti-spiritual. But then you read the life of Jesus I did a little um, study through Luke's gospel this week, and something that astounded to me is the amount of times Jesus was eating food. What's astounding about that is not that he ate food, he was a human. What's astounding about it is that the gospel writers recorded it. It's so superfluous, so unnecessary, so basic. Yet there it is. In Luke chapter two, Jesus is born, and the gospel writer goes to, art, goes to lengths to say he was born into a feeding trough. Interesting in Luke chapter 5 he has dinner at Levi's house chapter 7 dinner at Simon's house chapter 9 feeding of the 5000 chapter 10 which Brent helpfully reminded us of dinner with Mary and Martha chapter 11 dinner with the Pharisees chapter 14 he gave an injunction to invite the poor to a feast chapter 15 it's the parable of the prodigal son which ends with a what with a feast Chapter 16, parable of a rich man and Lazarus, all about a meal. 19, dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Chapter 22, the last supper. And chapter 24, Jesus appears to his disciples in his resurrected body, shows them his hands and his feet. Yes, I'm the resurrected, crucified Messiah. And the disciples' response wasn't, oh my gosh, you're amazing, let's worship. They said, can we have some fish? And he cooked them breakfast. Robert Karras, the New Testament scholar, puts it like this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal, why? Why? And here's the one big idea I want you to entertain this afternoon, because Jesus knew something about food and feasting that we run the risk of forgetting. What is in a meal? Two things, Jesus' mission strategy, and God's very self. Jesus' mission strategy and God's very self. Stay with me, let's go into Jesus' mission strategy. One of the things that's always struck me about the Gospels is that they always articulate Jesus' mission quite clearly. Uh, It's in Luke chapter, I think it's 19, verse 10, and it says this, articulating Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is this, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, He exists and He has come to seek and save the lost. That's his mission, that's the vision, that's Jesus' marching orders. He wants to take those who are lost, sort of geographically disorientated, not even on the map of relationship with God, separated by sin, separated by brokenness, turned away because of rebellion, and he wants to run after them with the Father's love. Really, really, really clear but the way that the Gospel writers narrate Jesus' life and the critiques of the religious elite as they look at the life of Jesus is really interesting. You go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, and it says this. These are Jesus' words summarizing the critique that the religious elite are bringing against him, and it says these words. The son of man, that is Jesus, myself, him talking, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is summarizing the critique the religious elite are bringing against him, and that critique is simply this. Jesus, all you seem to do is be at parties eating food with the down and out, and those society would discount because of their sin, their brokenness, and their outcastedness. What's going on? When I think about seeking and saving the lost, I think of street preachers announcing judgment. Or I think of cold call evangelism at university, going up, asking the questions. Or I think of door knockers coming and asking you that famous question, do you know where you're going tonight? I don't know. (laughs) When God thinks of seeking and saving the lost, here's what he looks for. He doesn't look for a pulpit. He doesn't look for a front door to knock on as a stranger. He looks for a table, do you see that? Now, don't email me, there's other things that happen in the New Testament. Paul preached, it's from where we get the word preaching of the good news, evangelism, gospeling in the Greek. But notice what Jesus models. He takes this clear vision, I exist to seek and save the lost, reconcile those that aren't on the map of God, back to him, how? Dinner, dinner. This is Jesus's mission strategy. I think in the modern West, as Christians, uh, we're very aware when we read the New Testament there is an imperative to do mission and to do evangelism, to preach the gospel in a way that people would respond in repentance and faith. That's the Christian mission. In fact, uh, it's the Archbishop, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who famously said the church is the only organization that exists for those who aren't yet its members. Beautiful imperative to make sense of the vocation of the Christian, the purpose of the church. But when we experience shoddy strategies, when we look at what someone does in the name of faith, in the name of Jesus, that creates more enemies than it cures, here's what we end up doing. We say, because they executed a poor strategy, I'm gonna forget the imperative to do evangelism. Do you see that? Do you experience that? Like when was the last time you woke up and you were like, I exist to be God's hands, God's feet, and God's mouthpiece to the world? When was the last time you woke up thinking that? This is the imperative of the New Testament. But a lot of Christians in the modern world, we see Christians doing a poor job of it. We ourselves might have done a poor job of it and we think, well, because I executed a poor strategy, I'm gonna do away with the imperative, but here's the claim, the imperative doesn't go. God still wants to seek, and He still wants to save the lost. He's done it in the past, He wants to do it now, He'll continue to do it in the future, and the purpose of the Christian life is to partner with God in that mission. We need to regain this vision of the imperative that the New Testament gives us. We forget the imperative because we've witnessed bad strategies. And yet Jesus stands there with his mission really clear. I wanna seek and save the lost. And I actually think his strategy has more relevance in our cultural moment than ever before. Um, we live in what some sociologists, got my TD Jakes rag here. Um, all the Pentecostals in the room, you know what I was talking about, there you go. Um, Sociologists call the cultural moment that we're in a post-Christian culture. In fact, the guy who coined this term is a guy named Philip Reef. He died in 2005. And looking back along the corridors of history, he sought to make sense of the way in which we culturally arranged ourselves, and he came up with three terms to define those three epochs. Uh, Term number one is pre-Christian. And so you think of the Roman Empire and Europe at large, and even some of the West down through Southeast Asia, before the revelation of Jesus Christ, these places were pre-Christian. The term that was used historically is pagan. Now, we use that term negatively. It's, just, it's actually just a historical neutral term. It means non-Christian to Christians in the third and fourth centuries doesn't matter. Why do I labor this? In the third, fourth century, as Constantine came through as emperor and himself converted to faith, which is up for debate as well, uh, the Roman Roman Empire became Christian. So you move from what could be a pre-Christian culture to a Christianized culture, never a Christian culture, because you can't make everyone Christian through the state. But Nevertheless, the artifacts, the, the painting, the architecture, it all sort of took on this Christian hue. And so whereas in the first culture, pre-Christian, it was hard to be a Christian because the revelation hadn't arrived, in a Christianized culture, it was hard not to be a Christian or at least a cultural Christian. And then in the 20th century, something changed, and we became what Philip Reef called a post-Christian culture. And in a post-Christian culture, people say things like this, I'm spiritual but not religious. I want to know God, but I don't want a relationship with the church. I'm open to different things, and we start prescribing a whole host of spiritual things, and you might insert New Age here or Eastern spirituality here, and none of it really matters except for the larger cultural fact that we're a bit allergic to institutionalized Christianity, but we might be spiritually open, which is why you can meet someone who says, I'll never step foot in a church but I've started this mindfulness meditation program through an app on my phone and I really think I'm in touch with the divine. That's what's possible in a post-Christian culture. In a pre-Christian culture, it was impossible to be a Christian. In a Christianized culture, it was impossible not to pretend to be a Christian. And in a post-Christian culture, there's a whole host of openness and a whole host of allergy toward the institutional church. What does that mean? It means people will quickly step foot at your dinner table before they'll step into a church. That was a long way around, hey. People will really quickly be open to stepping foot at your dinner table, being present there, breaking bread there, opening a bottle of wine there before they'll step into a church, which means this building's not the greatest missional asset we've got. You are. Your dinner table is. Your front door is, that fence that you share between you and the neighbor. It's not safe from your invitation. No one is, nothing is, because you're on mission. You're taking Jesus' strategy, the New Testament's imperative, and you are seeking and saving the lost, how? Put a roast on, invite your neighbor. I know this to be true because one of the, um, and I stole this illustration from another pastor, so don't, like, let me not pretend here for a second, but I've read her book, her name's Rosaria Butterfield, and she wrote a book a number of years ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and this stunning meditation on the beauty of Christian hospitality. What many people don't know about Rosaria Butterfield is she, was a, um, she held a 10-year professorship at Syracuse University She was a staunch atheist, in fact, anti-Christian. And uh, she, she, um, she was a literature professor. She wrote feminist theory, queer theory. And there was a time in her life in her professorship where she wrote an article. And that article existed to argue against Christianity and to point out all the ways in which the Christian story and Christian worldview was dangerous. Published it. A local pastor read it and in reading it, replied. I don't know if the reply was published or whatever, but she found the reply to be intellectually helpful, warm in tone, and at the end, the reply had an invitation to dinner. So Rosaria Butterfield goes round to this pastor's place for dinner, sits there, and he answers all of her questions, has no agenda to try and prove her wrong, and that starts a relationship. Two years later, Rosaria Butterfield gives her life to Jesus Christ. And in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she said, Christian love, or let's say dinner, let me just insert that there, it can turn strangers into neighbours, and neighbours into family of God. Who are you inviting to dinner this year? Imagine if nobody was safe from an invitation to a meal at your house. And imagine what God would do. It's kind of like a secret weapon, if I'm honest. I thought of an illustration, I'm gonna skip it. And let's look at point number two, God's very self. What's in a meal? Well, Jesus's missional strategy. Let's be that kind of strategy to the world. And number two, God's very self. When we were living in the UK, there was a place we'd frequent. I think we were there three times, but I loved it so much that I feel like we frequented there. It's called the Borough Markets. Anyone been to the Borough Markets in London? Yep, awesome. You go there and there's like fresh fruit, there's fresh cheese, there's awesome meat, incredible poultry, and trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. I, um... We loved going there. And if we had have lived in London closer, I think we would have frequented there and it'd become our sort of fresh fruit and veg market. And... When you go to a fresh fruit and veg market, I don't know if you have experienced this, but um, you always form two connections when you purchase goods. Connection number one is to the food itself, connection number two to the person who sells you the food. Now, at a supermarket chain, you're more connected to the food and you have a transaction with the person. Makes sense, it's helpful, it is what it is. Uh, But when you go to the markets, you, you originally go for the food, like Donna's pink lady apples, they're unparalleled. But then you get to know Donna and you experience who Donna is, you learn some of her story, you become relationally connected customer and and creator, produce and seller. And what I've discovered when you shop for fresh fruit and veg is that you're not just connected to the food, you're connected to the creator, the cultivator, the producer of that food. In fact, that relationship sometimes begins to take over the food itself, so you become loyal to Donna, even though she's had a bad season with her pink lady apples. You're like, I'm still gonna buy from you because I want you to do well. It's connection. And uh, just imagine yourself walking through the borough markets and you see Bob with his cheeses, Tom with his sourdough, Penny with her avocados, Gunter with his meat and poultry, he gives you a discount because he likes you and you've bought his stuff well last time. Then there's Donna with her eggs and then there's Matthew Burt with his coffee. And when you're walking through the markets, the perfect term to describe those who are selling goods, it's not like cash register or checkout person. It's what you might call a provador, A provador, And a provador is someone who's worked with the goods, who's cultivated the food, who's been personally involved in everything you're about to purchase. And so when you buy your cheese, you buy your eggs, you buy your meat, you're interacting not just with the food itself, but with the person who made that food, with the cultivator of that food. Now, there's a guy named Nicholas Tui, I think his name is, he's a Baptist minister, he wrote his master's thesis on Luke, and the food in Luke's gospel. And he had this beautiful phrase. He said it like this, God is the providor. God is the providor. What do I mean? That passage that Kath, my wife read for us just before Psalm 104, it put it like this, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. This big vision of God, this incredible uh, uh, vista of God's transcendence and His beauty and His creative power. Verse 1, and then the psalmist does something interesting. He begins to describe all the mundane ways that we get the things that end up on our dinner plate. Read these words with me. Go on this journey with me. It says, this, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine or just sweat, and bread that sustains their hearts. Or another way to talk about this, to go to a different creation narrative, Genesis two, verse eight and nine. Now the Lord God, and I love this imagery, because if I was God, here's what I'd do i just say it and it'd be done, which is sort of what Genesis 1 gives us one picture of one facet of the diamond of. But Genesis 2, it's much more earthy, much more visceral, much more involved. God sweats in Genesis 2. Get a load of this. Now, the Lord God had planted. We were planting um, some natives yesterday, my wife and I. We sweated to get those things into the ground. Listen to this language. He planted a garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. What's the point? Long way round, short way home. Here's a quote from a guy. He's a Baptist minister from Melbourne. His name's Simon Carry Holt, he used to be a chef. And now he pastors a church in the center of the city which reaches out to the homeless. He said this, in the creation story, God's creating and providing are one. There's no separation, no movement away from creation on God's part. This is not the God of head office, the anonymous CEO of a global supermarket chain seeking market dominance. This is God the Providor, creating, choosing, handling, connecting, and feeding. This is the God of the pantry, not of the boardroom, a perspiring God who does not manage providence from afar but embodies it. Why is this important? One worldview sort of exercise and then we'll apply this to our lives. It's important because the way you see God interacting in and through creation will dictate what you can enjoy of it. Go with me on this. Uh, A more Western spirituality would say that at the beginning of time, God wound creation up and then just let it go on its own processes. He creates natural law, he creates scientific principle. And so God sets creation up and just lets it go forward. And so God and creation are now separate. That's a Western spirituality. On the more Eastern spirituality, it's not that they're separate, it's actually that we run the risk of confusing them. One of the sort of Hindu Vedas would say something like this, Atman is Brahman or the soul is the universe. You ever talked with someone on the street and they're just like, I'm really getting in touch with the universe and they got their shoes off? What they're saying is that God is the world, God is creation. Here's what the Christian worldview says. The Christian worldview says that God is separate from creation but so intimately interwoven through creation that we can see Him, we can feel Him, we can touch Him, we can experience Him. That's the Christian worldview, that God can neither be confused with creation, nor seen as so separate from that we'd never interact with him as we look at a beautiful sunset. We can see God through the sunset, but he's not the sunset. We can see God through the beautiful creation, but he is not the beautiful creation. And Here's the point. We can see God in a really good meal, but God is not that good meal. Jonathan Edwards would put it like this. Uh, these are but the sunbeams. You are the sun. These are but rays, you are the light. You can do one of two things with that. You can say, because I've got the sun, I don't need the light. Or, because I know the sun, I will experience the light for all its goodness and all of its beauty, all of its wonder, all of its giftedness. Here's what this means. It means we are free to really and rightfully, and this is more spiritual than you think, we are free to really, as Christians, and rightfully enjoy food. Like you can, as your pastor, here's what you can do you can enjoy a good meal. Like cultivate that thing, cook that thing, put a crust on that steak, sort of um, uh, parboil those fresh snap peas and shock them in ice so that you get the perfect Christmas and the perfect sweetness. You can and should enjoy a good meal. People think that becoming a Christian, here's the takeaway I think, becoming a Christian means having pleasures confiscated. It's not true. The Bible would argue that becoming a Christian means having your pleasures categorized. God is the supreme being, worthy of all my attention, all my affection, but he's revealed himself in creation with good things for me to experience for his glory, my joy, along the way. I remember a few years ago reading a book by a guy named Joe Rigney called The Things of Earth. Remember that hymn that was sung? Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. That's a beautiful hymn if it's in response to suffering. Why? Oh, my life's hard. God, would you take away this pain? One vision of Jesus has such power to take you out of that. But Joe Rickney had a contrasting thought. He said, if you use that hymn as a way by which to say the things in this world are bad and pleasures shouldn't be experienced, rightly received from Christians who know God's the ultimate good, then what you're saying is that every time I look at Jesus, my wife's smile is just that bit less vibrant and my burrito is just that bit more dull. But he goes, because I know who God is in Jesus Christ and these are good gifts that he's given me, my wife is radiant and I love her. My burrito is incredible and I'm so thankful And that coffee I had from Matthew Burt this morning at John Mills himself, that was otherworldly. The distinction here is between direct encounter with God and indirect encounter with God. And you'll see a little chart because you're welcome. A direct encounter with God, you might access through a spiritual discipline like fasting. God, I'm going to forego earthly pleasures so I can feast on you. We're going to do that this week as a church, and just like Brent. I get hangry, I'm terrible at fasting. I'm really challenging myself this week, I won't tell you what that is, but please join me in seeking God. I genuinely think God will minister to each of us as we seek Him. But you know what I'm gonna do at the end of it? I'm gonna get indirect with God. And I'm gonna cook a really good meal. And I'm gonna invite some friends over. And I'm gonna carve the meat, and I'm gonna pour the wine, and as we feast together, we're gonna talk about all that God's done in our lives over the last week, all that we sought him for, all that we longed for him to speak into. Why? Because both of them are legitimate. If you were to try and ask me, which one do you go for, which is more spiritual? You know my answer, fasting. But imagine if every single time you sat down to a meal, the more spiritually direct thing to do would be to pray for grace, and then every time you take a bite, someone just keeps praying for grace. That would be more directly spiritual, more, more look sort of you know Christian obedient. But here's what this tells us. Lord, thank you for this meal. Now, the right thing to do is just to say, this is amazing. Isn't God incredible? God the Providor, He's shown us his love, not just in what we're saying grace for, but in what he's given to us on this plate. Dallas Willard would put it like this. We dishonor God as much by fearing and avoiding pleasure as we do by dependence upon it or living for it. Here's my point, point. and I'm gonna land the plane here with a few practical things, and we're gonna to worship together. My point is, did you know God can be present to you in an indirect way, but nonetheless really in the food you eat? Now the prime example of that is the table of the Lord, which we're gonna come to at the end of this service. But when I was about 19 years old, I was walking through Ashgrove and I'd just gotten a burger from a place called Burger Urge or get a burger, doesn't matter. And I remember hoeing into this thing. And a good smash burger does a few things. Uh, Number one, when you put down the meat on the grill you smash it down, you leave it for long enough for something called the the Maillard reaction to take place. The Maillard reaction is where the sugars and the fats caramelize and create this crispy underside. So you got the the fat there. And then you wanna melt some cheese on that thing because you know what's good for you. So you throw down the cheese and you pair that with like a nice acidic aioli, perhaps with a drizzle of lemon and garlic in there. And by the time you got the bread buns, you end up with this little thing, which is perfectly sweet, perfectly salty, wonderfully acidic a bit of umami, it goes down way too easily. And I was walking back from this burger and you know what I thought to myself? How sad it is that a burger can't taste itself. (laughs) You think I'm kidding. Now, if God's real and he waters the grass that feeds the cattle, he plants the grape that makes the wine, here's what we'd be foolish to do. Think of those things in place of God. But here's what we'd be equally foolish to do. Pretend that they're evils and dishonor God in the face of Him giving us incredible gifts in creation. So what's my point? Would you let God be present to you this year as you dine? That's it. Because He is. Imagine a people in whom every meal was marked with this holy reverence and deep unashamed enjoyment. So how do we feast to the glory of God? Because Paul would say it like this, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, directly this year, why don't you fast? Try that. Indirectly, why don't you feast? Uh. Secondly, I wanna say this, the Bible wants to make the ordinary sacred and the sacred ordinary. That in other words, we ordinarily gather around a table every single night. What would it look like for you to make that sacred, to see God there, not as the food, but present to you in community with food? What would that look like? And then how do you make the sacred ordinary? How do you take the communion we do here on a Sunday and just say, actually, I'm gonna practice this in my small group in my home. I'm gonna gather around the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Some family ideas, I'm just throwing these in for free. Uh, light a candle when you sit down for a meal. Eat slowly. Plan and prepare your shopping list. Give thanks for the elements of food on your plate. God, thank you for the green beans, you made them. You, you watered the grass which gave birth to these plants. What about some rhythms for the year? Here's a question for each of us. What does hospitality look like in your calendar this year, friends? What does it look like? Uh, for some of you, it might be small group. For others of you, it might be Easter Sunday, inviting someone over for a meal after we celebrate the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Shrove Tuesday, celebrating with pancakes. It's February 13th this year, I think it is. What's my point? Simon Carey Holt, the writer of that sort of chef turned pastor, I could only dream. He says it like this, the table is the locus of intimacy and family identity and communication. Reconciliation and romance, covenant and community, redemption and fellowship, sustenance and celebration, beginnings and endings. We know this. What's happened at your table? Why don't you stand? In a few moments, we're going to come to the table of the Lord, and we're going to take what, for all intents and purposes, could have been just a nice meditation from me. And I just want to say it doesn't need to be. Because even though there's been no food present as I've been speaking and we've been listening, there has been a table prepared. And that table is not just the physical one down the front with bread and juice symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus. That table is the invitation to relationship God has for each of us, intimacy right now. And so I just want to invite us to respond. Maybe if everyone could close their eyes, bow their heads. We're going to step into worship. And I want you to imagine, if you can, you've walked into a room and the smells are beautifully boggling. Your favorite meal is on the table. And lo and behold, sitting at the table is Jesus Christ himself. And a normal reaction within the heart of most humans would be to say, oh, I've I've turned up at the wrong party, this is too special. But Jesus turns around and he looks at you and says, I've prepared this for you. I've set a table for you. I wanna dine with you. It's just you and me. And he kicks out the chair. And you realise he means it. Let's worship. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you
1: would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.